Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Hi, Jack. You can't say that on a plane, so don't say hi to me. If you see me on a plane, just resist. Just don't. That's so cheesy. I hope you're not lactose intolerant. Okay, okay, okay. Come on, church people. I'm, I'm so glad that we, uh, we do communion together. I'm glad that we take of the... We're, I know we're supposed to call that stuff bread. Bread and juice, and uh, it was so funny this morning. I'm glad when my kids are in here. I remember a couple years ago when we were doing this communion, and one of my sons uh, did it really with me for the first time that I remember, and it was so meaningful because I realized if our kids weren't in the service with us, would they ever take communion until they're adults? You know, when would they ever do that? And so it was good, but my daughter was sitting next to me this morning, and I opened the top thing to give her the thing. And she's like, oh, I want to eat it now. And in my mind, I'm like, it's not even that good. Like, what do you mean you want to eat it right now? But you know how kids are. They're so, they're so ready. And I think it's so wonderful that God's spirit, his personality, his attitude toward us is, I want to be with them now. I want them to be with me now. And uh, that's just so sweet. We're going to continue on in our series. Uh, if you haven't been here for the past however long, don't worry. It, every, every day that we study Jesus and we look at Jesus and who he is in the Gospels, there's always something new. It's always great. Uh, no matter how many times I've read the Gospels, it never gets old. It never gets old. And so today we're going to be looking at how Jesus calls people to himself. The idea is, how does Jesus call you to himself. What did that look like and what does that look like even now? And so turn with me to Luke chapter 5. I know we read the whole passage this morning before we knelt and prayed, uh, but this will be our time to, to read through it again, just verse by verse. So Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. Now, if you're familiar with the story, you're, you probably have a few things rolling around in your mind about the setting and what's happening here. If you're not familiar with the story, I would love to break it down for you because there's a lot of concepts just actually in this one verse. There's multiple, uh, multiple activities happening, different principles, different concepts. And so first, it says that Jesus went out, which was really it was a sign of how Jesus lived his life. And really, it was how Jesus was teaching his disciples, his followers, how to live their lives. Because eventually, Jesus would give them a great commission, and he would say, I want you to go, go therefore, and make disciples of all nations. He wanted them to live their lives as if they were continually going out with his message and his influence to make disciples, to show others in our language, to lead others to do the same, to lead other people to love God and love people. And so just right there, after this Jesus went out, you see this rhythm in Jesus' life. He was constantly going, why? For you and for me, for God the Father. He wanted to live a life of going, and so that's unique all on its own. But then it goes further. It says, 
and he saw a tax collector named Levi. Now, I want to break this down for you just in case you don't know what a tax collector is. Tax collectors in this day were Jewish men employed by the Roman government to collect taxes. Rome was in control of the whole world, think of it like most of the world, and the Jews were under the control, under the leadership, the government of the Roman Empire. They were still allowed to be Jewish and do their thing. That's how uh, Rome, Roman, the, the Paxa, the Roman peace. That's how the Roman peace survived is because he allowed, the, the Roman government allowed the people to keep their culture and to keep their customs as long as they paid taxes. You, all, you had to do a few things. You had to pay your taxes and you could never rebel against the Roman government. If you did those two things, Rome would let you live and they would, they would live in harmony, Roman peace together. The Roman Paxana or something like that. And so Jesus spots the tax collector. He's in the middle of his shift doing his tax collector thing. He's collecting, collecting taxes. Now, not all tax collectors were the same. Levi was a, just a regular run-the-mill tax collector. There were different classes of tax collectors. I don't know if you know this. Uh, if you go to Levit- um, Luke chapter 19, verse 2, you see Zacchaeus' story. It says Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. The reason why Zacchaeus was so wealthy is because he wasn't just a bottom floor tax collector. He was a manager over other tax collectors. So there was like a pyramid, just like in normal work, you always have a hierarchy of those over you. So tax collectors collected taxes of those under them. And you got to think of them like brokers or credit card companies. The Roman government did not pay tax collectors well. So you would have to ask, how did these tax collectors get so rich? How were they so wealthy? They were wealthy off the backs of the Jews. Like brokers and credit card companies, they had to add interest and fees to the Jewish people. So let's say you owed the Roman government $5,000. Well, they've got to collect $5,000 and give it to the Roman government, but they got to get a paycheck too. they got to make a living. So they would charge you $5,600. And $600 would be given to them, but out of that $600, about $200 had to go to the chief tax collector. Because if I'm just a bottom-rung tax collector, i got to make my money. So that's how they, they lived. They, they added fees and interest to the Jewish people. They were Jewish, which means they were traitors. And that's why no one liked the tax collectors. Even Jesus referenced the tax collectors as outsiders and gave them an impression tax collectors were not welcome. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. Now, Jesus was saying that with a little bit of an attitude, a little emphasis, like, if you just love the people that love you, you're just as bad as the dun-dun-dun tax collectors. You're just like those tax collectors. They're no better than, than you're no better than them, is the idea, because the Jewish people thought of tax collectors as way down here. Matthew chapter 18, verse 17 a lot of you know this passage around the idea of uh, church discipline. You know, those, if your brother sins, go to him in private, and if he doesn't listen to you, bring two or three others, and if he doesn't listen to them even, then you bring him before the church, and if he doesn't listen to them, the unrepentant Christian, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Why would Jesus say that? Why in Jesus' ministry did he constantly refer to tax collectors as sinners and outsiders. Well, more than traitors, they broke the law. They broke God's law. There's two passages, if you're taking notes, there are two passages that really solidify the evils of the tax collector. 
The first one's in Exodus chapter 22. In Exodus 22, verse 25, God is giving Moses the, the instructions of how the people ought to live, how God's people ought to live. If God were the king of this people, this is what he would say, I want you to live this way. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender. Don't be like those creditors. And you shall not exact interest from him. So God had this principle, I don't want you to charge interest to your fellow brother or sister. Don't be like that to them. Don't get rich off of their poverty. They don't have money, they need it. Now, it's not like today, credit card, I'm convinced credit card companies for the most part practice part of an evil. And I know that's a strong statement, but just bear with me, looking at Exodus uh, 30 to 22 and Leviticus 25. What they do is, you don't have enough money to buy what you really want, and consumer debt is definitely unbiblical. You should not go deep into debt for things that you don't need to survive. But can credit card companies charge you interest so that they can get money from you? You'll never get done paying off these things. You don't want to go in credit. Debt, debt is like a master, a slave owner over you. You should not be in debt. You should do all you can to stay out of debt. And God knew, surprise, God knew that this would be an issue for them, so I want you to practice not doing that. I want you to make sure that you don't create systems where you're charging people interest to get rich off of their, I don't have enough money yet. Don't do that. Don't live that kind of way. Well, they did. Leviticus 25 also, in chapter 25, verse 36, do not profit or take interest from a fellow Jew, but fear your God and let your brother live among you. You are not to lend him your silver with interest. Pay attention to that. Don't lend him money with interest or sell him your food for profit. You need food to live. Listen, just sell them what's fair and don't take advantage of them. Don't hike up the price. Give them what they, give them what they need. Don't try to make a ton of profit off of selling food. Now, I know that sounds crazy to you, especially 2,000 years ago, actually 3,500 years ago, when food was such an economy, the agriculture of that day, they didn't have industry like we do today. But God says, if you're going to be a people that reflects my image and you love one another, when it comes to food, I want everybody to eat and I don't want you to be getting rich off food. I want you to not take advantage of your fellow brother or sister. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. He went, by the way, in Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy, not as much in Deuteronomy, but Exodus and Leviticus, he mentions this phrase, he uses this phrase, Moses does, when God says, I am the Lord your God. I am the one who delivered you out of Egypt. So he's reminding them, hey, I'm the king, I'm the boss. I know you think that you know better than me. Don't do it. I'm giving you this rule because it's so important for you to thrive and, and do well. So Levi, back to the story, this is in context of who, when, first verse, when Jesus sees Levi, the tax collector, in his tax booth, in the tax office, he's staring into the eyes of a traitor, a sinner, and an outcast. That's the point of verse 1, or verse 25, 27. Jesus knew exactly who he was calling, and that's the point. He didn't, he didn't wait until Levi changed his immoral career or got his life together. When Jesus called Levi to follow him, he didn't say, now Levi, he didn't look, it wasn't like this, you know, like in our day it would be like this. Jesus is, you know, 
he's a, he's a shepherd and he's calling people to himself and he's like, hey, hey, Levi, come here. And then one of the disciples are like, psst, psst, Jesus, he's a tax collector. And then Jesus would be like, oh, wait, no, sorry, Levi, the truck's full. We can't take you with us. You know, never mind. It wasn't, it wasn't like that. Jesus saw Levi in the tax booth. That's important. In the middle of his immoral shift, in his immoral job, he knew exactly who he was, and that's when he called him to, to himself. And that's still true today. Friends, when Jesus called us, did he call us because we had our lives together? Did he call us because we had something to offer him? Or did, he, did Jesus not see us exactly as we are and call us? When Jesus called you, he called you knowing you were a sinner. It's not like a job interview. You know, a job interview, you go to the interview, and what do you want to put forward? Your best foot. You want to put forth your greatest self. You, you want to say all the good things like, oh, would you tell us, you know, what's some weaknesses you have? Well, you know, I work too hard and I'm too, you know, I just give too much. You know, like that's, people want to give their best forward. You can trick a lot of people. I grew up with manipulators. I grew up in an environment where people were hustlers and you had to hustle to survive. You had to manipulate. And so you see how in our nature, in our brokenness, in our broken nature, we want to present the best us so that people will love us, accept us, like us. The whole point of this is Jesus saw him in the middle where he knew exactly who he was. And when Jesus calls sinners to himself, he knows exactly where you are. He knows who you are. And he still calls out to you, follow me. That, that is amazing. That's a God unlike any other. That's a leader unlike any other. Leaders are looking, who's the best, who's the cream of the crop? Not Jesus. He calls out to all equally, come and follow me. Even you, the tax collector. Jesus sees us as we are, but his call doesn't end there. Number two, not only does Jesus see us as we are, but Jesus doesn't leave us like we are. Jesus calls out to Levi and says, follow me. And he clarifies later what he means by follow me. In order to follow Jesus, you have to give up whatever path you were on. You can't follow Jesus and be the same person. You can't say, okay, I'm going to get a little bit of Jesus, but I'm going to just keep everything else the same. That's not how Jesus works. Jesus calls you even in the middle of your mess, knows exactly how sinful you are. He doesn't judge you. He loves you, but he still says, I want you to follow me. I want you to change direction and come after me. Jesus made it clear when he was questioned about his relationship with sinners because Jesus got a lot of bad media. He, got a lot, he had a bad reputation with a whole group of people. Eventually to a point within about two years, he was crucified and murdered and people were yelling, crucify him. So Jesus had his haters and this was part of the reason. They questioned him and asked him, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus replied to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus does not call sinners, hey, I'm just this lovey hippie guy with a beard, and I just want you to, to just know that I love you, and just, just stay the same. Just, just be you. Just stay in your sin. No. Jesus calls sinners to something. 
and that's repentance. Repentance means a change. I'm going to turn to where I was going. I'm going to turn my back to that, and I'm going to turn toward God. I tell people like the best words that I know how to give it because repentance, you can give a definition of repentance and people don't understand. Here's the idea. When you know you've repented, this is how you know you've repented. You feel bad about your sin. Anything you know that is breaking God's law, that's not what he wants for you. You feel bad about it and you hate it. And even though you don't think you're going to become perfect, in your heart and mind, you say, I don't want that. I don't want that sinful lifestyle anymore. I don't want those things. I know my flesh wants it. I still feel tempted. I still want to go that direction. But in my mind and inside here, I know that that's not what's good. Jesus, please forgive me for that broken part of me that still wants those bad things. I, I hate my sin and I love you. I love you because you died for me and you took my sin, all the bad things, all the punishment I deserve. You took that on the cross. You did that for me and I hate it. I wish I, wish I would never sin again. That's repentance. I don't want my sin, I want Jesus. And when Jesus called even a guy like Levi to himself, he called him to something. He called him to change. Jesus doesn't leave us like we are. He sees us as we are and he loves us, but he doesn't leave us. He loves us too much to leave us in our sin. Jesus later gives a parable about a Pharisee who thinks he's righteous because a lot of people think this stays the same, or, or this is just about salvation. That when Jesus calls you to himself, it's just salvation, and then you're just a righteous person, and you're really good. And, and that's an attitude that Jesus really taught against. So Jesus, way later in the story, gives a parable, a story, that seems to relate to Luke chapter 5. You would think that Jesus was talking about Levi and these Pharisees. So I'll read it to you in Luke 18. Luke 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. So there were some people that thought, well, I'm a good person. I'm good enough. I'm better than that person. And Jesus is like, I got a story for you. So he tells them this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, context, same story, and the other a tax collector, same story. This is like the same thing. So these two people go up to the temple to pray. Verse 11, the Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. That's key. He was really praying to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even this tax collector. Now, at this point in the story, the Jews would listen to the story and they'd wait, wait, how did the tax collector get in the temple? You know who's not allowed in the temple? Tax collectors. So that Pharisee, Mr. Self-Righteous, was in that temple, and somehow in this story, a tax collector made his way humbly before God. That's the way they thought of the temple. And that Pharisee looked down on that text letter, and he said, man, I'm so good, I'm not like that low-down dirty dog. That's how the Pharisee was praying. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get, right? There's a lot of churches weak in their theology. This guy would be a deacon like that. I tithe, look at me, look at all the things. I dress right, I act right, I'm socially acceptable. I belong here, not that guy. Is there a person that doesn't belong in such a way that we want them to know the love of God? Are we so good that nobody, there are certain people, they just wouldn't be allowed to hear about the Lord. Don't let them come. 
Don't relate to them. But the tax collector, verse 13, standing far off. You know, in the temple, we find out that there are places where they would pray. The Pharisees, it was really cool. The Pharisees had these, like, I call them a shawl. It's not really a shawl. It's like, it's like a towel. <laughs> and they have these towels, and on the towel, there's these decorations. And when the Pharisees would go in to pray, and they'd look all fancy, they would go into the temple, and they would do this thing where they wrap the towel like Batman's cape around them. It was eventually called their prayer closet, by the way. They wrap that towel around them, and they pray. Now, you could still hear them you could hear them jingling around with their stuff and you could hear them praying and, oh, I'm so great, you know. But the tax collector never went to those places in the temple. He was so humble, this is the way he thought. I don't deserve God's love and mercy. That was exactly where God wanted that tax collector. So the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This guy knew he was a sinner. I know that I'm not right, and I'm not perfect, and I'm not so good. I know I don't deserve heaven. I know that. Beating his chest. Have you ever beat your chest? You were so mad at yourself, you just hit yourself? God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus tells him, let me explain this short parable to you. I tell you, this one, speaking of the tax collector sinner, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's not that the Pharisee was actually healthy. You know who was really sick in that story? the self-righteous Pharisee. But his problem is he didn't know it. When Jesus told them, when they were questioning him, he replied to them and said, you know, it's, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. In other words, it's not the healthy who go to the emergency room. Now, if you're a medical worker, I know sometimes healthy people go to the emergency room and it's upsetting and they have to wait two hours, then they complain. It's like, you're here, you shouldn't be here and you're not dying. That's why we're taking these other people. I know that story. My wife's a nurse. So most of the time, healthy people don't go to the emergency room is the point. You're not supposed to go to the emergency room if you're healthy. That was Jesus's point. But those who know they need me, those who are sick, go to the doctor. When you know that you need help, you go to the emergency room. I've shared this before, but the problem with the righteous, self-righteous Pharisee was he was so full of himself, he had no more room for God. And that can be us. Even after salvation, we could become full of ourselves and think that we're better than other people, and then we miss out on what God's trying to do in our lives. We're self-righteous and think, I'm not as sick as that person, but you don't realize that you have a terminal illness and it's growing like a poison in your heart at the very moment, as soon as you think you're better than other people. The Bible calls that a poison. It calls it evil and sinful. It says that you're blind and foolish. And so you have to repent and turn from those feelings, turn from those thoughts. I'm not better than anyone else. It took just as much of Jesus' blood to wash my sins as it does the tax collector and the sinner and the prostitute and the drunkard, and it's only by grace that I'm saved. I, I do not deserve heaven. I'm never gonna deserve heaven. It is a gift. So we wanna be people that speak like God's mercy is a gift. God's grace is a gift. 
Jesus sees us as we are. He doesn't leave us like we are. Luke 5, 28. So, leaving everything behind, Levi got up and began to follow him, just like the other disciples. He was willing to leave everything. If we follow Jesus, we've got to be willing to leave our pride and leave anything else. We've got to say, God, I want you. Now, this doesn't mean you're going to perfectly do this. You're going to sin. You're going to stumble and fall, you know, just like babies kind of grow from crawling to walking to running. You know, we all grow. We need to mature. But you have to be willing to say, God, I will give up everything for you. Because if you don't, that means you still don't get it. It still doesn't register in your mind. Your sins are, are causing a separation between you and God, and you deserve hell because of your sins. But God doesn't want you to stay that way. He doesn't want you to leave you in your sins. He loves you. He died for you. When, you. when you get that, you will say, nothing else is more important than him. And so we leave everything behind and follow him. And that's not the whole story. Look at the next verse. In verse 29, Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now, there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were reclining at the table with them. So, for me, when, when I think of follow me, if I were in Levi's shoes, Jesus would tell me, all right, Jack, follow me. And I'd say, okay, where are we going? That would be my response. Let me go with you. What's interesting about Levi is he translated follow me to, I want you to come to my house and I want you to meet everyone, all of my friends. I want the people around me to know about your salvation and your forgiveness and your goodness. You know, new Christians are often the best witnesses, aren't they? They're the greatest witnesses. When someone gets saved, the first time they get saved, they're like so on fire. They're like telling everybody. It's almost as if new Christians haven't learned the bad habits and excuses of us older Christians. New Christians are so on fire and ready to share with everyone around them. And so Levi translates this to... I want you to come to my house. I want to host a dinner, a banquet for you and for them so that they can meet you. Levi wanted to show the world who Jesus was and the truth is same for all of us. Jesus sees us as we are. He doesn't leave us like we are and Jesus uses us where we are. Just like Levi, Jesus uses us right where we are. Levi didn't say, okay, I'm following Jesus, I need to go be a missionary to India, and, and I've got to go, you know, somewhere else. Jesus, Levi understood and knew immediately, Jesus is calling me to follow him, and I can do that right here in my own house, in my own community, in my own city, in my own place. I want my friends and my neighbors, I want them to know who Jesus is. Levi shows us that you can use exactly what you have, and what you have is all you need. Levi only had his house and his food and his friends, and that's exactly what he used to show people Jesus. Years back when I was a teenager, before I moved from where my parents lived, I became a Christian at 16. I'll never get over it. I, I cannot believe I'm a Christian today. I was proud and a liar and sinful and my parents were non-Christians and I grew up in a broken home and there was abuse and drugs and everything else involved just in my short years of life and God called me to himself right in the middle of that. I get saved at 16 and then there's this lady, Heather, and her husband, I forget his name, I can't remember his name for the life of me, but Heather and her husband kind of took interest in me. Well, they started praying 
not just for me, but for them, what God was calling them to do. They started praying near Christmas time, and they said, Jesus, what gift can we give you? What can we give you? We want to give Jesus a gift. So they prayed about it, and they felt convicted that God wanted them to save whatever money that they were going to spend on gifts and their tax return for something he wanted them to do. And they did the crazy thing of listening to God. And they said, okay, I'm just going to save this money. We're not going to spend it. So they saved the money toward the spring before summer. Their church is an old school Baptist church. Their church did this VBS, but they went all out and crazy and decided to do backyard Bible studies. We're going to have host sites. Maybe you could call it Summer Quest. They didn't call it Summer Quest. They, call it, they just call it, I think they call it Backyard Bible Studies for all I know. But anyway, they did this thing in their backyard and they felt like God was telling them, I want you to do this in your backyard. I want you to invite your friends and here's, here's where your savings come in. They felt led by God. So they went out. I was 17, I think. Maybe 18. I was between 17 and 18. They went out and bought the newest video game system. I think it was an Xbox at the time. And they bought a second system, a different system that was also popular then. I don't remember what it was. And they, they wrote flyers. They created flyers and passed them in their neighborhoods. And they told the moms and dads in their neighborhoods and the kids, if you come to our Bible study during this time, your attendance will give you points. If you memorize Bible verses, we'll give you points. If you bring a friend, we'll give you points. And if you bring your Bible, we'll give you points. Guess who had the highest attended VBS of that church has ever seen? Heather and her husband. I went there one of the days to help them because they needed help, so they ended up asking me for help. I said, sure, I'll come help. Their backyard, small, suburbia, downriver Michigan, poor place. Their entire backyard was full. There, were, there was over 30, 40 kids. I don't remember how, I didn't count the kids, but I just remember thinking their entire backyard is full of kids, and they were sharing the gospel. They, they used only what they had, and it was enough. And you want to know why it was enough? Because they were the ones that God called. God doesn't make mistakes. When he calls you to follow him and to do what he's doing, it's not like you're going to turn around and say, oh, God, that was a great idea, but I got some bad news. The reason why this isn't going to work out for us is because you didn't know what I know. You're not aware of the fears that I have. You don't know the complexities of doing this thing that you've called me to do. It's, if you would only know what I know, then you would know you shouldn't have called me to do this. That's not the attitude they had. You have exactly what you need to do what God has called you to do. You only need what you have. And it's because God has called you to follow him and do it. So I want to end with some questions uh, you see this table that was set up? I don't know if Tina Withno would want me to say it was her, so I won't mention who set this up last night and spent her time doing this nicely. Clearly, the dishes are not broken, so I didn't touch any of this yet. But this is a banquet table, and I want you to think of this, okay? Levi set up a grand banquet at his house so that his friends could come. What is your grand banquet opportunity? Maybe it's not hosting a dinner at your house for your tax collector friends. Maybe none of you have friends that work for the IRS, right? But what is your grand banquet opportunity? Where, where is your opportunity where Jesus is saying, follow me, and you're his witness, you're his hands and feet, he's called you to love him, love your neighbors yourself, and lead others to him to make disciples. What is your grand banquet opportunity? 
Is it a backyard barbecue where you invite your neighbors and you say, hey, I'd love to get to know you better. We're going to have a barbecue in my backyard and you invite them over. You, you share with them. You care about them. You know what's really cool about a banquet table? The reason why the Pharisees were so mad at Jesus, it wasn't because he came in contact with the tax collectors and the Gentiles. The Jewish people actually came in contact with them at the marketplace. They would try not to, but they still did. It wasn't that he was next to them. It was that he cared about them. And he fellowshiped with them. You know, over a meal, you talk and you relate and you build relationship. You listen to one another. What is your grand banquet opportunity where people that need to know Jesus can come and hear? A fire pit in your backyard. Maybe you need to do a prayer walk in your neighborhood. You and some friends. You and your kids. You and your grandkids. Maybe, maybe it's at your workplace. Maybe God is calling you to figure out a way to share in a deeper way with your friends. Now, I know some of you work in hostile environments. If you even mention anything conservative, you could be fired, even in Kansas. It's horrible. It's hostile out there, and I pray for you. And I, I know I don't understand because my job actually pays me to tell the truth. Some of you are not allowed to do that. But you have some grand banquet opportunity. What is it? Maybe it's even summer quest. Maybe, maybe this summer, God is telling you, drawing you, you can, Summer Quest is the one event our entire year, we do it every year. Do you know that that's the one event in this church where every single person, no matter what age and stage of life, can participate? It's us not just crowding in this building, but going out to our neighborhoods. It's us being witnesses to our neighbors. It's loving people. Summer Quest is one of the best things we do, and we do it every year. You don't have to wait for some grand new thing. You can do what we're already doing every summer with Summer Quest. And maybe some of you, you know that God wants you to participate and you just need to do it. You just need, and I'm not trying to push for number. I, I actually, I think we, we exceeded our expectation of hosts. I'm not trying to just pull you to do something. I just think Summer Quest is great. I think when you invite your neighbors to your backyard and you treat them like human beings and your flesh too and you eat with them and you care about them, you care about their kids, I think, I think there's going to be rewards in heaven for stuff like that. But what is your grand banquet opportunity? And the last question would be, and this is the harder one, if you were to, do, if you were to think about your life and what you're doing right now, who is missing at your table? Who will never step foot in this room until they come to your banquet table? Because you know what? Sunday morning, we're not a church of fog lights and all kind of activity where we just try to draw a crowd. You want to know why? Because this service was never meant to do what you are supposed to do Monday through Saturday. This one hour, there are 167 other hours during the week than the one hour you, well, I know you spend more than one hour here. But you, there's 168 hours in a week. And God has called you to be the church. You are the hands and feet. Don't wait for this service to maybe draw someone in here that they can hear about Jesus. Jesus has called, the church is not a building. It's not an event and it's not a service. The church is a people. The church is you giving up your money and saying, I want to do this for them. I want to reach out to them. We just started two new councils. One's kind of old. We, we started Reach Local, a new council in our church so that we can be a part of the community and care more for those around us. 
but you can do it every day already. Who is missing at the table? And I'm all about inviting people to church. I say invite anybody that wants to come in here to hear the truth. But do you know that this service is about worshiping God? This service is about us encouraging one another and spurring one another on to love and good deeds. This service wasn't meant to be purely evangelistical. It's meant to be equipping, to equip the saints. The reason why the American church has dug in so deep with let's just bring them here is because they didn't want to go to them. That is just the solid truth. We're going to let the professional pastors do it. We're going to let the ones with the titles do it. And the church has lost the mandate and the courage and the mission and the spirit. You are the body. You are the fingers and toes and arms and legs. You are the ones that God has out there, not just in this room. This room is the huddle. This isn't the game. Sunday morning is not the game. This is the huddle. And God has called you to come here, know his word, worship him together, and then to go out. Be the church. You are the church. This room is not the church. Father, thank you for inviting us to your banquet table. Thank you for, for calling us out to yourself. I thank you for the church body. My life was changed by the church body that cared for me and invited me to their home on a Tuesday night. Thank you for the way that you call us to love one another and listen to one another and care about one another. Teach us how to be examples of what it means to build relationships. Send us out. Use us in a way that honors you. We know that you've called us to a high calling. Would you help us to take it seriously every day? That we would be your people. We love you because you first loved us and you reached out to us and you sought after us. You came to call us to repentance. So would you use us as a reflection of you in this, in this community and our circles of influence? Thank you for this time. Thank you for our church family. Would you use us in greater, years, greater ways this year, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.